1929, Gerald Holland wrote in American Mercury magazine, Whatever odium may be attached to beer in other parts of the Republic, its status in St. Louis is as firmly grounded as James Eads's span across the Mississippi. Beer made St. Louis. And he was right. Beer was the lifeblood of the city. Empires rose and fell because of a nation's thirst for well-crafted brew. The Lemp family rose to prominence in St. Louis during America's Gilded Age. They made the city's first lager beer. They built a national network of taverns, distributors, and suppliers while Anheuser-Busch was still trying to figure out how to transport their beer out of St. Louis. When it came to beer, the Limps had no true rivals. They were innovative, groundbreaking, and wealthy beyond belief. And yet today, far too few remember their names. They are better remembered for the mansion they built than for the award-winning beer they once made. They have become little more than spooky characters in a ghost story, rather than living, breathing personalities that shape the history of St. Louis. I decided to change the opening of the podcast for this episode, which is an exploration of the final days of the Limp Brewing Empire. We've already established who the Limps were and what they accomplished during the late 19th and early 20th century. I hope that the episodes that have come before have helped you to understand the events both great and terrible, that made the limps who they were. They were not perfect, but they were human. And they were, as F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, the very rich, they're different from you and me. As I've said before, Fitzgerald was not writing about the limps, but he could have been. There is no question the limps were very different from you and me. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. This is the fifth installment in our series within a series about the history and hauntings of the Limp family of St. Louis. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend that you go back to episode 19 and start the series there. That serves as an introduction to the Limp family and their importance in St. Louis history. This episode will explore the final days of the Limp Empire, from the death of Billy Limp to the tragedies that followed, ending with Edwin's death in 1970. All I ask is that you remember that while this is indeed a legendary tale about one of America's most haunted families, it's also a story of sadness, heartbreak, and despair. The Limps may have been very different from you and me with their scandals, extravagant wealth, and lavish lifestyles, but they also suffered more than their share of tragedy, perhaps the more than most of us who consider ourselves ordinary people would be able to bear. Billy Limp was happy to be out of the beer business, but he wasn't happy about the way it had happened. He'd always imagined himself retiring someday, finally free of the responsibility that he'd never wanted. He never imagined the company that his father and grandfather had built would come to an end because of a silly law. He never thought their life's work would become illegal in a country that had embraced his family and allowed him to live the American dream. He was bitter, angry, and most of all, felt betrayed. I'm out of the brewery business for good, he said. I'm 54 years old and it's time to quit. He would sell off everything that was left. He didn't believe that beer was ever coming back, and if it did, he wasn't sure that he cared. Not every brewer in St. Louis felt like Billy did. 
Many did what they had to in order to survive through the 13 long years of prohibition. They made soft drinks, baking soda, ice cream, and some walked the fine edge of the law by selling supplies to home brewers so they could make their own beer. One friend of Billy's, Joseph Papa Joe Grisadick, was sure that someday, maybe soon, the American people would realize that prohibition wasn't going to work and would repeal the law. Things were bad, there was no question. He was in trouble with his creditors and looking for a way to keep things afloat. So he came up with an idea. He would buy the Limp's Falstaff name and logo and build a company around it. He approached Billy with the idea, and at first Billy wanted no part of it. The Limp family had built a good name and a reputation over the years, and he couldn't conceive of it being used by someone else, even a friend. But Joe was quick to explain that it was merely the name and logo of Falstaff, one of Limp's lines, that he wanted, not the Limp name itself. So finally, Billy agreed. Joe bought the rights to Falstaff for $25,000. He turned his company around using the Falstaff name to sell bacon, ham, root beer, and ginger ale during Prohibition. Once it was repealed, he returned to making beer, and Falstaff beer became an American icon until production of it ceased in 2005. Papa Joe had managed to turn his hopes for the future into a business that defied all the odds, but Billy Limp no longer shared his friend's enthusiasm for making beer. He decided not to wait and see if Prohibition would end. He'd sell off the aging hulk of a brewery down the street from the Limp offices. It wasn't doing anyone any good just sitting there empty. In 1919, the brewery had been valued at $7 million. Three years later, though, at auction, it was thought to be worth less than half that amount, at best. The auction was held in June 1922, and the once magnificent brewery was sold off in pieces to five different companies, with the largest section going to the International Shoe Company. The grand total from the sale? Only $585,000. A brewery just wasn't worth much when it was illegal to make beer. Billy was shocked by the sale. Even though he didn't need the money, he had hoped to recoup at least a quarter of the property's worth at the sale. How would anybody feel to get eight cents on the dollar for a great plant like that, Billy asked. They told us that when Prohibition came, we could make something out of our plants, but look what's happened. Angry and bitter all over again, Billy fell into a depression. It wasn't as though he'd been financially ruined or even close to it, but the burden of destroying his family's empire must have weighed heavily on him. His friends and employees often spoke of his erratic behavior. He'd mellowed with age, but now he was acting like his old self again, irritable, hot-tempered, and rude. He often complained of poor health and nervousness. Months passed, and he seemed to get better. By the fall of 1922, he seemed to relax and to start making plans for the future again. He decided to get rid of all that was left of the Limp Brewery business. He told his friends that he intended to liquidate the corporation, sell off all the old corner tavern saloon sites, and the rest of the real estate connected to the brewery. After that, he was going to sell some of his other real estate holdings, and as he told his friend August Bush, take it easy for a while. One piece of real estate he planned to sell was his house, All's Well, and then he and his wife were going to take an extended trip to Europe. Just before the holiday season of 1922, Billy became sick with some sort of chest cold or flu, but he was determined not to let it get him down. His plans for getting rid of some of those tiring responsibilities had cheered him up, and he started making preparations to be away from the office during his trip. His employees noticed that Billy was smiling again when he walked into the office on the morning of December 29th, which is why what happened that day became even more tragic and, frankly, inexplicable. When company secretary Henry Volkamp arrived at the brewery offices located in the former Limp family home on that morning, he found Billy was already there. The two of them were joined shortly by Olivia Burchek, a stenographer for the brewery and Billy's personal secretary. The happy mood that Billy had been in when he arrived at the office quickly faded. Both Henry and Olivia later noticed that he didn't look well. Trying to cheer him up, Henry told him he looked better than he had the day before. You may think so, Billy replied, but I'm feeling worse. Henry sympathized and then went upstairs to his office on the mansion's second floor. The telephone rang. It was Billy's wife, Ellie. They spoke for a few minutes. Olivia later said that Billy talked very quietly. She was unable to hear what turned out to be his last words to his wife. After Billy hung up the telephone, Olivia asked him about some copying that she was doing from a blueprint. Billy first told her what she had was fine, and then he changed his mind told her to go downstairs to the basement and speak to the brewery's architect. With Olivia safely out of sight, Billy took the revolver out of his desk. Olivia was downstairs when the shot rang out. 
She didn't realize what she'd heard at the time because there were men working in the basement, but when she returned to Billy's office, she found him lying on the floor in a pool of blood. She called for help and other employees rushed to the office. A pillow was placed under Billy's head, but he was fading fast. Apparently just after Olivia had left the room, Billy had retrieved the gun, unbuttoned his vest, and shot himself in the heart through his shirt. The police and a doctor were sent for, but by the time the surgeon arrived, it was too late. Billy was dead. Why did he do it? We'll never know. Like his father, he left no note behind. Billy's best friend, August Bush, said he was confused by the suicide. He noted that Billy had recently decided to sell off many of his real estate assets and relax for a few months. A week before he shot himself, Billy had dined with Bush, who said that Billy seemed cheerful at the time and that he gave no indication he was worrying about business or anything else. Ellie Limp collapsed when she learned of her husband's death, but Billy's son, William Limp III, was not as shocked as Billy's friends were. He rushed to the office when he heard what had happened and knelt on the floor next to his father's body. You knew I knew it, he cried. I was afraid this was coming. When asked, he refused to explain these remarks to the police. When interviewed after the shooting, many of Billy's friends and employees mentioned Billy's erratic behavior dating back many years. Their recollections painted a picture of a man who suffered serious mood swings and often violent behavior, which seemed to indicate he was suffering from manic depressive episodes or what we might consider today to be a bipolar disorder. Such a condition unknown to medicine at the time would certainly explain the collapse of Billy's marriage, his sometimes vicious temper, and then the calm, orderly way he would carry out his business. His moods often varied between times of happiness and periods of dark depression. Everyone assumed that his melancholy was caused by the death of his sister Elsa and the loss of the brewing business, but it's more likely it was a chemical imbalance, possibly affecting several members of the family, that led to Billy's unusual behavior an eventual suicide. But whatever the reason for the suicide, Billy was gone. His funeral was held at the Lint Mansion on December 31st. Billy was interred in the family mausoleum at Bell Fountain Cemetery in the crypt just above that of his sister Elsa. The bad luck that affected the brewery followed Billy to the grave. His house all's well along with all of the furniture and 192 acres of land was sold at a loss. His estate, valued around a million dollars in 1923, was divided between his widow and his son. By the end of the 1920s, the Limp Company, once one of the largest breweries in America and a worldwide purveyor of beer, was largely forgotten. With the factory sold, Billy gone, and his brothers and sisters involved in their own lives and endeavors, the days of the Limp Empire had come to an end at last. His two siblings remaining in St. Louis, Charles and Edwin, had left the family enterprise long before it had breathed its last. Charles worked in banking and finance, and Edwin had entered a life of seclusion at his estate in Kirkwood in 1911. The fortune they'd amassed was more than enough to keep the surviving members of the family comfortable through the Great Depression and beyond. But the days of limp tragedy were not yet over. In 1933, Prohibition was officially repealed, and almost immediately, beer began to be made in St. Louis again. The future was bright once more for many of the local companies like Falstaff and Anheuser-Busch, but dark days were still ahead for the Limp family. The seemingly endless string of disasters that had plagued them since the death of Frederick Limp continued, this time centered around Billy's son, William Limp III, who had apparently inherited his father's bad luck. William did not have an easy life, despite the fortune he'd inherited from his father. He struggled as a young man. It was said he was never able to overcome the lack of attention that he received from his father as a child. Always eager to please, William ran the clock out when his father committed suicide. William was only 22 years old at the time. He quickly burned through his inheritance, which was the start of his lifelong money troubles. His family helped as much as they could, and his uncle Charles even gave him a job at the Indemnity Company of America for a time, where William served as a vice president and treasurer of the firm. And during this time of improved fortune, he and his wife Agnes purchased Allswell, his father's old home, in hopes of keeping it in the Limp family. But the good times were short-lived. By 1934, William was in trouble again. 
The mortgage holders had foreclosed on the house and his marriage to Agnes had turned sour. In February 1937, they separated and later divorced. Two years later, though, William became convinced he'd found the answer to all of his problems. Limp beer. He believed he could revive the once popular limp name and start making beer again. He sold the idea to central breweries across the river in East St. Louis, and they announced a new line of limp beer for which they would pay royalties to William. In October 1939, Central changed its name to the William J. Limp Brewing Company and invested in a massive advertising campaign to announce the return of the limp name. Full-page newspaper ads touted the century-old formula was again being bottled. Official production of Limp Extra Pale Beer began on November 1st. At first, sales exceeded the expectations that anyone could have had for a beer that had been out of the public mind for more than two decades. The new venture seemed destined for great success, and William believed that he could finally restore the luster of the Limp Empire. But this was not to be. In less than a year, the company was in serious financial trouble. By September 1940, the William J. Limp Brewing Company had managed to accumulate a massive amount of debt that included interest payments on loans, back taxes, and advances that had been taken out by William. The revived company was doomed once again. Trading in the company's stock was suspended on December 19, 1940 on the St. Louis Stock Exchange. A few months later, the company declared bankruptcy. It was over. The brewery was taken over by the Ems Brewing Company and all contracts with William were terminated. By 1945, they discontinued the use of the Limp name in connection with their beer. The Limp Empire had collapsed again, almost before it could struggle out of the ashes, and this time, it would never return. Tragically, William died soon after the company did. He was walking down the street on March 12, 1943, when he suffered a brain aneurysm and died before his body fell to the sidewalk. And there was still more death and tragedy to come. In 1929, Charles Limp moved back into the family mansion. He'd never married and had lived in the mansion until 1911 when Billy had decided to convert the house into office space. Charles then moved to the exclusive St. Louis Racquet Club for years and was pleased when he was finally able to move back home again. A few years were spent renovating the house and the restoration was completed in 1929. Thanks to his business interests, Charles had not been affected by the closing of the Limp Brewery. In addition to his insurance company, he also owned many rental properties, had real estate investments, and even owned a small electric railroad line for a time. He was active in St. Louis politics and was a powerful member of the local Democratic Party. None of his business or political responsibilities kept him from traveling, and he journeyed around the world, often buying artwork and souvenirs that became the source of conversation to visitors who came to the Limp Mansion. Charles had always been eccentric, but his brother Edwin believed that his return to the family home, the scene of so much tragedy over the years, made his condition more pronounced. In fact, Edwin had urged his brother to let him sell the house after Billy's death, but Charles wouldn't hear of it. The house had been his home for his entire life, and he couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Over time, he developed a number of strange habits and unusual quirks, many of which, including his mandatory 5 a.m. wake-up time, were also impressed upon his guests who came to stay. He became even more eccentric with the passing years. He was terrified of germs and illness. Visitors were never allowed to wear their shoes in the house, and Charles refused to shake anyone's hand. He often showered five or six times each day, and anything that he handled from outside of the house, including money, had to be washed before he touched it. Charles' strange behavior increased with age. He became more and more reclusive and eventually stopped letting visitors, even old friends and family members, come to call. He lived alone, assisted by his last two servants, Albert Bittner and his wife, Lena. Aside from the Bittners, his only companions were a parrot and his German shepherd, Serva, which had been named for the limp's ill-fated near beer. Late in life, he developed severe arthritis and was in constant pain. By 1949, he was unable to stand the pain anymore. On the morning of May 10th, Alfred Bittner left the servants' quarters in the attic and went to the kitchen to prepare breakfast for Charles as he normally did. He then placed the breakfast tray on the desk in the office next to Limp's bedroom as he'd been doing for many years. Bittner later recalled that the door to the bedroom was closed and he did not look inside. 
At about 8 a.m., Bittner returned to the office to remove the tray and found it to be untouched. Concerned, he opened the bedroom door to see if Charles was awake and discovered that he was dead from a bullet wound to the head. Bittner called for his wife and she telephoned Charles's nephew, Richard Hawes, the husband of Marion Limp, Frederick's daughter. Hawes in turn summoned the police to the house. When family members and the police arrived, they found Charles lying in bed, wearing a white nightshirt and lightly holding a 38 caliber Army Colt revolver in his right hand, which was draped across his chest. He was the only one of the family who had left a suicide note behind. He had written, In case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. He'd formally signed it at the bottom. Oddly, Charles had made detailed funeral arrangements for himself long before his death. He made it a point to say that he did not want to be interred in the family mausoleum. Well, this was not so unusual, but the rest of his instructions were. In a letter he'd written to the funeral home in 1941, Charles ordered that, upon his death, his body should be immediately taken to the Missouri crematory. His ashes were then to be placed in a wicker box and buried on his farm. He also ordered that his body not be bathed, changed, or clothed, and that no services were to be held for him and no death notice published, no matter what any surviving members of the family might want. On May 11, 1949, Edwin Limp picked up his brother's remains at the funeral home and took them to the farm to be buried. And while these instructions were certainly odd, they were not the most enduring mystery about this arrangement. It seems that no record of where Charles Limp's farm was located or where his body was actually placed has ever been found. There are no records, and Edwin never revealed the site. To this day, it remains a mystery. By the time of Charles's suicide in 1949, almost every member of the immediate family was gone. Annie had died in 1939 and Lewis had passed away in 1931. Only Hilda and Edwin remained. When Hilda died in 1951, it left Edwin as the last survivor of a family that had seen more than its share of both triumph and tragedy. Edwin was a quiet, reclusive man who had walked away from the Limp Brewery in 1911 to live a peaceful life on his secluded estate in Kirkwood. He was an early conservationist, raised animals, and embraced the natural world. He collected fine art, became an excellent gourmet cook, and held elaborate dinner parties for his close friends. Edwin managed to escape from the family curse, but as he grew older, he did become more eccentric and developed a terrible fear of being alone. He never spoke about his family or their tragic lives, but it must have preyed on him all the same. His fears caused him to simply entertain more and to keep a companion with him at his estate throughout the final years of his life. His most loyal companion was his longtime friend, John Bob, who lived with him at the estate for more than 30 years. His loyalty was absolute, and it's believed that he was never away from the estate for more than a few days at a time during his years with Edwin. He never discussed any of his friend's personal habits and remained faithful to him even after Edwin's death. Edwin passed away quietly of natural causes at age 90 in 1970. Like his brother Charles, he left some unusual instructions that were to be carried out after he was gone. According to Edwin's wishes, John Bopp burned all of the paintings that his friend had collected during his life, as well as a number of priceless Limp family papers and artifacts. These irreplaceable pieces of history vanished in the smoke of a blazing fire, and like the glory days of the Limp Empire, were gone forever. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language 
better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words, how, how? into the office on the morning of December 29th, he looked... Damn it. Ah! Okay. Which is why what happened that day became even more tragic and frankly... Fuck. I'm gonna, gonna do the last sentence, okay? Always eager to please, Billy ran the clock out when his father... Nope. Damn it. In 1933, Prohibit... I'm just going to take a drink, not even going to attempt that again. I should invest in a taller mic stand next time, too. All right. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 23, which is the 10th episode of season 2, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. It's our 10th episode of season two, right? And Something like that. It's, and this is like our fifth episode of the Limps. Say, it feels like the 10th episode <laughs> of the Limps. Like the, yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure. And, and, you know, really, we are down to the end with the limps yeah and i'm not sure i'm gonna have a tough time letting this go so you know it's a good thing we've got some special episodes coming up and the the, the haunted america conference episode coming up because uh i'm not sure i'm ready to move on i think I'll, i think i'll be <laughs> okay yet. i'll be able to part um but no I know you're probably you're... tired of it yeah no, I, I feel no. like i've like moved in with these people i can't I right can't get I've, rid of it's them it's gotta be driving yeah. you crazy yeah. i'm sure well you know i had threatened that there might be another episode but then I, I fixed that. So now we only have this week and next week or next the next mm-hmm. episode, and then we're done. Then we're done. We're done with the limps. But and of course, now I can't promise anything once we get to the exorcism. I'm not, I'm not even, even. I'm not even giving you a count. Yeah, I'm not even going to entertain the idea yeah, of no. a limit on that. No, but don't. Uh, I will say that these, just from the outline so far, these, this episode and the next one, I think are going to be some of the best. That yeah, that I ever done. I, I really liked this episode, and you know, next episode we get into all of the ghost stories associated with the Lent Mansion, um, from you know some of the stuff that's been legitimate stuff that's been recorded, um, and then you know I'll be I'll be able to share some of my personal experiences too because right. I, I've had some. So uh, some, a lot of nights in that house. So some of the people that have missed the ghost stories, they're going to be happy, and then the people that really like the history, you're going to be upset. But uh, well, I don't think they'll be upset because no, it's still be upset. there's still a lot of history in the episode, even though it is it's it is our. Uh, let's just say it, it's our all ghosts all the time episode. Yes, the and, you, and there are a lot of stories in yeah. there too, personal stuff from you. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited to to dive into that later. Um, well, then coming up after that, um, after our next episode, the ghost episode for the limps, uh, we'll be uh, doing our haunted America conference episode. Will be coming in. That is our going to be our live show that we're doing, uh, live recorded show. I, I got to remember to say that, mm-hmm. um, at the Haunted America Conference, which is June 22nd, 23rd. And um, I know that we've talked about this pretty much almost since the podcast started kind of thing. Uh, we've been talking about the Haunted America Conference. And um, I've got to tell you, if you're, if you're into ghosts and you're into hauntings and the unusual and the unexplained, this literally is your last chance um, to get signed up because 
I think we're going to have one more episode that airs before the conference, and it'll be just about the time that we stop selling tickets in advance. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go and you want to do it at a discount price, you've got to get signed up. We only have, at this point, we have less than 50 seats left. Uh, we've sold a bunch of seats since the last episode, and we are down to the wire. And so I, we, we're, we're urging everybody who wants to come and, and seriously, you don't you don't want to miss this event. It is a blast. And I know last year was your first year. Yeah. And um, I know you had a good time and you didn't even know anybody yet. Go to ghostconference.net, get your tickets now, and uh, we'll see you in June at the event. Um, and you will have, Cody will have a table there uh, in the vendor room. And um, I have stickers now. Oh, yeah. And stickers. Yeah. yeah. So if you want an American Hauntings podcast sticker, really why wouldn't you of course um if you want one you've got to come to the conference to get one yep and if you want to get that logo tattooed we can also talk about that yeah yeah that exactly out. yeah uh also just a quick note uh i want to say we finally hit a uh, hundred thousand total downloads for the show we're at like yeah. almost one hundred six thousand right now and that is uh, largely due to the number of reviews and ratings that we get on itunes so i know we beg for those every every episode but that's because it really does help uh, people find the show and right. initially when you started typing in American Hollings podcast it wouldn't necessarily pop up first but now since so many people are reviewing and rating and listening it is popping up so all those reviews um, they really do help they really do help and we really appreciate yeah, it we do so um, anyway before we get started with the rest of the show uh, let's take a quick break If you're enjoying the show, remember that American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference. So if you're into haunted history, you're going to love everything that we do. And you can see all of that at our website, AmericanHauntings.net. Now, if you're enjoying the St. Louis episodes of the podcast, you might also enjoy the new edition of my book, Haunted St. Louis, which lets you take a deeper dive into these stories and a lot more. And coming soon is April Slaughter's book, Disconnected from Death, which I was lucky enough to get to co-author with her. It's a look at America's death customs and rituals from embalming to post-mortem photography, which our listeners are really going to enjoy. But just remember, as an American Hauntings podcast listener, you always get 10% off your orders from our online store by using the promo code PODCAST when you're checking out. See the show notes for the link. I also want to mention one of our returning sponsors, Studio, which makes amazing headphones and earbuds. I always use mine when we're recording the show, and I recently picked up a new model from them, the Trey. Now, I admit I was skeptical at first because these are earbuds, and I never do well with those. They always fall out of my ears, but these don't. They're actually made for walking, hiking, and running, and are designed to stay in place with custom wingtips that fit right inside your ear, no matter how weird your ear might be, and believe me, mine is weird. You can go nine plus hours before you have to charge them. They come with a clip that keeps the cord secure on your shirt if you move a lot. There's even a leather carrying case to keep them from getting tangled up in your bag. Plus, the polished metal and matte surfaces have a really cool Scandinavian look if you're into that kind of thing. Best of all, American Hauntings podcast listeners get 15% off anything from the studio.com website just by using the promo code HAUNTINGS. Trust me, you're going to like their stuff. I use mine every day. So check out the show notes for links and codes to order. And now, on with the show. Okay, so the empire crumbles to dust. So at this point, Billy's had enough. He's done. Yeah. There's been a lot going on. It's yeah. been a terrible time for the limps. And he's done. He wants to sell. So... Mm -hmm. Guy comes in by. Well, I mean, you yeah, you have to remember though, and I don't mean. I could, mm -hmm. Well, that's what I do. I said I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's what I do. Well, no, that makes um, it better if you say that. Well, I guess my thing is, is that you know, he he really, I think, had been done long before prohibition. I mean, it was, you know, they hadn't done any kind of improvements to the brewery, and they used to do stuff to the brewery for every probably, you know, every couple of months there was a new project, ongoing thing. By 1911. Um, Billy was just done with it. And it makes you wonder what was going on in 1911. Well, we don't have any, any, any document to say exactly what was happening, but that was the year the last improvements were made at the brewery. That was the year that Billy decided to kick Charles, his brother, out of the house that he'd been living in because, you know, everyone else in the family either lived somewhere else or had died. And he kicked Charles out of the house and turned it into offices. Why? 
You know what I mean? Why? Yeah. I, I don't know. Something. I, it makes me think something happened at the same time because that was also the same year that that um, Edwin decided to. You know what? I, I've had it with the city. I'm going to move out into the woods, build this house out there. He built this, you know, this arts and crafts movement, you know, stone house, you know, and wood house out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. because at that time that really was the middle of nowhere in right. Webster Groves and just decided I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of the city, which makes me think there must've been something that happened. Um, what it was, I, I don't know, but I, I, that's, do you understand what my yeah. thoughts behind yeah, yeah, yeah. it? It makes you wonder what, what, what occurred between all of the survivors that really sent everything in a different direction. And then now, you know, it's nine years later you know, Edwin's been living in the woods. Charles is living at the St. Louis Racquet Club. Right. And Billy is, you know, still running a company that he never wanted to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Prohibition comes along and One of the ruins the last everything. Straw. Yeah. And so he sells to, uh, I'm just going to say Papa Joe, because I don't know if I could pronounce this name correctly. Without sounding. Yes. Yeah. Um, but he bought the rights to Falstaff, essentially what he wanted for 25 grand, which is roughly $1.2 billion. No, no I actually what? did the math. Um, <laughs> from 1920 to now, they said it would be about 326000 yeah. It was a lot of money. Yeah, so but that's you some brand recognition Again, that was there. a huge, that logo was worth a fortune. You know, um, even if you take the word limp out of it and stick Falstaff in it, um, Falstaff was such a gigantic seller for the limps. Yeah. I mean, that was always like their biggest top earner and so by taking that out and putting Falstaff in its place taking you know and keeping that limp shield Mm -hmm. you know the limps were still whether whether Billy wanted to run the company or not or or whether he cared about it or not they were still making a tremendous amount of money right and so taking over that logo and stuff for 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 Joe Grisadick was one of those things that was it was it was a genius move Mm -hmm. it really was and that's how he survived Prohibition um, was by taking that over. I mean, that was the key. And he him. used it to sell, he said, bacon, ham, root beer, ginger ale, different things like yeah, that. Just stamped to put the Falstaff logo on it. People saw it, yeah. you know, and said, hey, must be good. I it's recognize got the, that. Yeah, it's yeah. got the logo on it. It must be good. So um, was it Falstaff beer or was it just Falstaff product? But it said, I think it said they were made until 2005. Mm. That was beer. After uh, they didn't make it, he didn't make any products but beer after Prohibition came to an end. Okay. Everybody uh, quickly divested themselves of Reverting you know, back. Bush got rid of the ice cream and all that. Yeah. They got rid of all that stuff. Everybody got rid of that and went right back to beer as soon as it was time. And they were actually, once FDR came into office, um, he had already, and he, he had campaigned with the idea of uh, Prohibition is over, mm-hmm. we're done. And so, like a year in advance before it actually was repealed, um, brewers were able to start brewing mm. and building up their supply because it takes a while. Um, you know, it's it's like today that the equivalent would be, you know, a winery that that goes into business. They don't have any grapes to start with, so they're buying their grapes from somewhere else. Right, and so they have to grow the grapes, and it usually takes a while to get everything back into production again. These guys had to, you know return their factories back to beer again, or people who decided now I want to get into the business had to build a factory or at least buy one that had been shut down for years. Mm-hmm. So it took a while, but they were able to start producing stuff. They just couldn't sell it until the repeal date went on. Right. And so, so they sell the brewery off piece by piece for eight cents on the dollar. Yeah. That's, yeah. that hurts. Yeah. Oh, that, that that's was, painful. And if you go, if you are there today, I mean, the, the brewery's still there. The buildings are still there. Most of them, not all of them, but mm-hmm. most of them are still there. And on the smokestack that's there at the brewery, if you look, it'll say ISCO on it because that was the international shoe company took oh, over the largest right. amount of the block of buildings there. Right. And they quickly put their name on uh, the smokestack. But one of the grain elevators, of course, still says limp. I mean, everybody's seen the yeah. photographs and stuff. Um, it still says limp on it after. And that was actually one of the elevators built in 1911 at the very end. There. Mm-hmm. So Nice. So I have some questions about so Billy's suicide. I, I don't know why yeah, everybody's got questions. Well, I, I mean, right. I'm sure his family did. I certainly do. Well, so, so. I, I always, I don't know why I hone in on these certain things, but I find it interesting that he shot himself in the chest, which I think is just, it's different from, you know, his family members. He also unbuttoned his vest. Well, that, you know what? You'd be surprised. Um, that kind of suicide was actually pretty common. Yeah. Um, because you're talking about, 
uh, a lot of times weapons with a different kind. It, it, the powder counts, the bullets are different than what we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're slightly different. So they have more stopping power now. So back then, if you shot yourself in the head, uh, Might there's not do a the really job. good chance that it would just bounce around the outside of your skull and you'd survive. Yeah. But by shooting yourself in the heart, which is what he did, mm-hmm. um, it was more of a, I guess you'd say uh, more of a sure thing. Yeah. Um, so, but, and by unbuttoning his vest, he took a cleared, layer, he took a layer of probably wool. Cause oh, okay. I'm sure he was probably wearing wool suit. Yeah. So took that layer out and then, you know, put it up to his, and I'm sure he was still wearing, but probably a thin shirt mm-hmm. and an undershirt and put it right up to his chest and pulled the okay. trigger. And, and even then, he didn't die right away. Yeah. It wasn't like it instantaneously killed him. It did a lot of damage, and he laid there and bled to death on the floor. Uh, so this was still not an easy way to go. Yeah, uh, He'd been better off to go down the street to the top of the grain elevator and throw himself yeah. off. Yeah, I mean, you got to really uh, but want it. I think, you know, he Billy and his guns, yeah. know, as we've already established. Well, so Billy I'm, and his guns. That's all, that's all. Okay, it answers a couple questions. The one question I still have, though, is... Why did anyone let the limps have nightstand revolvers? Like, <laughs> like they should have taken right. their guns away well, long time. There, ago. there weren't any. There, you know, there weren't any laws to 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 because is, I mean, friends and family intervention abusing it. Even though we see all these things with gangsters in the Wild West and things, people didn't abuse guns the way that they do today. Um, so, you know. Um, Although, I mean, I guess some people would argue that I mean, yeah. based on the way that Billy used his yeah. normally threatening everyone imaginable <laughs> yeah. with his gun. So it, it, things were just different then. You know, uh, it was just a different time. And so his son, uh, was it William the third? Mm-hmm. So he yes. says, you knew it. I knew it. I was afraid this was coming. And then he wouldn't really explain that. But, yeah. So, so he, we'll, he, we'll knew never some, know. he knew something. They must have discussed something or he just sensed that his father was depressed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, but the, the whole thing, the, the weird thing about Billy's suicide is, you know, Everybody always says, oh, you know, he was so depressed because, he, you know, he lost the business. Well, yes and no. Um, I think he was depressed because of the way things had happened and the way things fell apart. And again, it wasn't like suddenly he was broke because he yeah. wasn't, you know, at all. Um, and he seemed like he was doing so well. You know, he was, um, you know, he was telling his friends how, you know, good he felt about everything he was happy that he was getting rid of stuff you know he was you know thrilled to be taking this trip to europe with his wife to stay for months who knows and um just didn't have seemingly a care in the world i mean you know august bush was probably one of his best friends and they just had dinner and he said yeah he seemed great you know he seemed fine he was just so happy to be going on this trip so what did it well yeah. and that's that's why i theorized that you know, Billy, who I think was probably more noticeable than anyone, but it's a chance that everybody in the family had the same issue. I mean, if it's a genetic thing, right? I've always thought that maybe Billy had maybe a bipolar kind of thing because mm-hmm. it would it really explains a lot about his personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, because this was a guy that you know, on one hand, was highly respected for the way that he did, you know, business and was well-liked and, you know, was was really respected by other business people in town. And then on the other hand, he's rip-roaring and on the weekends, you know, beating people up, closing down bars, you know, yeah. uh, getting involved in brawls, threatening people with his gun. I mean, it's, you know, turned into a hor- this horrible marriage, which, you know, I'm sure that Lillian was a handful. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. I I don't, I don't ever doubt that, but I would lay 80% of the problems they had in their marriage on Billy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a guy who was extremely difficult. Yeah. This was a, this was a guy who really, you know, would not at the drop of a hat, start a fight. I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, he, but he always had the money to get out of it. So it wasn't like he was ever really going to get in trouble, but, um, you know, I like I said, I would I would blame a lot of it on him, and and but I've always wondered if maybe that's what didn't. I mean, here was a guy who was fine one day, mm-hmm. had dinner with his buddy, that you know had a you know great time, comes into the office, suddenly he doesn't feel good, you know, smiling when he comes in. Within half an hour, he doesn't feel good, and then finally, just for whatever reason, shoots himself. I mean, it's not like Elsa where there's you know 
everything's very suspect and we wonder who's involved and was it really suicide? Could it have been murder? No, Billy shot himself. But, mm-hmm. but my question is why? Yeah. I mean, it makes no sense, you know, other than if you look into it as a, as a mental illness. Yeah. And I, I, you did, I mean, you talk about that, but I was wondering if they were, if the family was prone to mental illness or was it the stress of success? Or do you think that maybe they were prone to it and they could have been fine had they led normal lives, but then all the stress of, you know, their lives ended up bringing that out that they were already prone to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It just makes me wonder how, if if I get rich enough, will it bring bring it out? We'll find out. Yeah. People people say, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. And and I say, I want to find that out for myself. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) The only people who say that are people who don't have any money. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Okay. So William III tried to save uh, the dying fortune, essentially by trying to revive Limp Beer. It started to work a little bit, then it went bankrupt. And he died from a brain aneurysm while walking down the street. That's all crazy. Do we know where he died? Um, You know, I've got it somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, But yeah, he was just walking down the street. And, you know, I mean, that's one of those things an aneurysm, when it goes, there's no warning. Yeah. But it just seemed like talk about a. I mean, you know, talk about a raw deal. Yeah. I mean, this this guy, and, and I almost said kid because. He never even had a chance. I mean, yeah. he, you know, was a little kid. He was only like, what, five, six, seven years old when his parents went through this huge divorce. Mm-hmm. You know, he got drug around by his mother, visited his father, you know, and, and that was one of the things that everybody always said about him is he was always trying to get Billy's attention kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, you know, then Billy kills himself when he's only 22 and then he ends up with all this money and it's like. You know, he had been raised with money. I mean, his mother had money. His father had money. Now he had all this money in his hands. What do you do with it? Well, man, you do exactly what your dad would have done. Blow it all. Yeah. So, because that's exactly what happened is, you know, he just blew it the way that Billy blew his. I mean, Billy burned through. That was one of the things I didn't really, I think we talked about it some, but Billy could spend money like water. I mean, that was, he never wanted to run the business. He never wanted to be involved in, you know, running the, the limp brewery. And he just wanted to spend money and go out and have parties and travel around the world and collect weird stuff. Right. I mean, that's all he really wanted to do. And I think, you know, William III was a chip off the old blog, except he didn't have that kind of money to spend. Yeah. So he'd always end up broke. You know, Charles gave him a job trying to keep him busy, mm-hmm. you know, at the insurance company that he owned. And I think that probably nobody says, but I'm going to say that came to an end at some point, which who knows why. Right. You know, but then he comes up with a get rich quick scheme, essentially, is what it was, because he wasn't really brewing any beer. All he was doing at that point was, you know, giving them the name and, and collecting royalties. Mm-hmm. On it. You know, he, he had already bought his dad's old house. You know, which he lost because he didn't make the payments. And, you know, what I didn't get into in the monologue was that the uh, there was actually a church that owned the mortgage on the house. Hmm. And they gave him every possible chance they could before they foreclosed. And finally, the church just said, hey, listen, I'm sorry, but, you know, yeah. you haven't paid us in, you know, months. And uh, they foreclosed on him. His, he and his wife split up. And, I mean, this was the guy that had a one bad break after another. And then, of course, the, you know, the beer scheme fell apart it worked for a year but the problem they were running into is that nobody was paying the taxes and there were all these advances that had been these cash advances that had been done to william who Mm -hmm. had of course been running out of money right repeatedly and um that was the end of the line i mean and, and then he died before the beer ever actually did you know, they, they finally quit doing it all together. I mean, they'd stopped paying him mm-hmm. um, and uh, stopped production. And then, you know, two years after he died. But he was just literally walking down the street one day and just fell over dead. Do you know how old he was when he died? 42. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, he was only 42 when he died. So, I mean, he was a relatively young guy. Yeah. You know, and, um, yeah, just... Well, rough, rough deal. Well, well, <laughs> Bad luck. We'll move on from that depressing topic to, um, <laughs> to another uh, to depressing, depressing topic. Yeah. So in, in a true limp form, Charles kills himself Yeah. with a bullet to the head, but he did leave a suicide note. He did, note. and I would say that of all of them, um, he seems to have been the one who had the most reason. Um, I think that by the time, by 1949, he was in such unbearable pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, you know, there weren't the treatments for, he had this severe arthritis. In fact, it, you know, it was always said that 
as he got older, he walked hunched over because mm. he couldn't stand up straight. He had just terrible pain. And I think he finally just got to the point where I can't take this anymore and, you know, follow in the family footsteps, so to speak, you know. So yeah. because his father and his brother had both killed themselves and well, we don't know about his sister, but um, you know, this was this was I think he was going through a horrible time. Plus he I think had a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. A lot of issues, which I think is probably why he never married. Um, why he really never had a life outside of business or you know, he just didn't. That's just what he did. It's what he devoted himself to. Yeah. Traveling the world and um, and working, you know, and politics. He's very heavily into politics in St. Louis at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I want you to clear up this rumor because it, it will make me feel better. Can we talk about Charles' dog? Yeah. Um, I don't know how that got started. Uh, I'm going to say it probably got started by some of the people who um, – started the monkey boy story, uh, um, which has absolutely no truth to it. And neither does this somewhere along the way. Um, I don't know. I I really don't know. It was sometime in the nineties. Somebody started a rumor that when Charles committed suicide, that before he shot himself, um, he went down. uh, Well, they also add that he killed himself in the basement, which we know is not true. Um, because he went down to the basement where he shot himself, but before he did, he shot his dog. Serva, the German Shepherd that he had, um, you know, this beloved pet that he kept for all these years. Um, I don't know how the story got started. It's it's absolutely not true. Um, Charles did not, did not. So for all you animal lovers out there, Charles Limp did not shoot his dog. I don't know how this got started, but he committed suicide in his bedroom uh, where he shot himself and no one knew it until the following morning when they found him dead. Nobody heard the gunshot. Nobody heard anything. Uh, but Serva was alive and well. No one killed Serva. All right, yeah. Good. I don't, I that's, don't know. I don't know how that know. started. That's one of those stories that just makes me crazy. It's like the monkey boy mm-hmm. thing. I mean, that's irritating enough, but the, the, the shooting, the dog thing, it's such a I, minor you know detail what? thing I think, too. I, well, but I think it's one of those things that, um, that came around at about the same time as the monkey boy did. And I'm going to blame the internet because that's, that's about fair. the time that that came along. Both, both stories. Yeah. Neither one of which are true. So, but you know, that's, uh, that's one of those things I always tell people, you know, when I'm talking about the limps is mm-hmm. that Charles did not shoot his dog. So never good. Fear. I mean, cause so you, you can kill as many people crazy, as you want, but Don't kill he, the dog. you know, he didn't shoot his dog. So. Well, that's, that's good. Um, I'm curious, this is just more for my personal interest, but when you, do research like what is it how do you uncover these things especially with the internet because you could google this a hundred times and find all the terrible stuff different stories, what is it know? the the like how, what have you like your process how do you hone in and actually find the truth of some of these well, things? a lot of this started i mean i started on this a long time ago so i mean this was pre you know around probably pre-internet really mm-hmm. the first time i ever stayed there at the lint mansion there was no internet back then um and so, I mean, you, you start with, you know, trying to go back through as many, you collect as many old newspaper stories as you can, any kind of a documents or any kind of accounts that you can. Um, and back then that wasn't easy to do. It's a lot easier now because most newspapers are online, but back then you had to actually go and, and you've probably seen it through. in the movies where people are, I mean, luckily you didn't have to actually thumb through old newspapers, but the microfish machine was yeah. like your best friend back yeah, in those I've, days. I've heard I mean, of you sitting, yeah, spinning those newspaper articles, spinning by trying to track down dates and having to check them out and having to find somebody who'd find the spool and you had to put it in the viewer and then you mm-hmm. could print them out. And, you know, it's, um, it, things have changed tremendously, but that's, that's a good place to start. So back then it was just easier just to make shit up than well, try I to think figure, that's, I, figure I really it out. think that's a lot of what happened is that, you know, oh, well, here's the story. So we can make this story better if we say this, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not going to go to the trouble to look it up. Right. You know, and so that's how a lot of these myths get started. Um, and, and you know, um, the, the two stories I think we'll spend the most time on in this season of the podcast, obviously the limps and the exorcism story, same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stories, you know, in the, from the St. Louis exorcism got started because of rumors. Um, just people told a story and then it got picked up and told us the truth back in the nineties, you know, when the internet came along, man, that made things even worse, you know? And, um, that's a lot of what's happened with the, with the limp house, the limp family, everything. A lot of that stuff just got started because it was just easier, you yeah. know, easier to just tell a, a bullshit story than it was to actually look up 
and find out the facts. And I was hoping that when the internet came along, it's like, oh, we'll be able to fact check everything. It'll be great. Yeah. No, it made everything worse. Yeah, it did make everything worse. But you know what? One thing I've noticed is that it has gotten better. It is, yes. Um, there are a lot better reference materials online now than there were 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, 20, definitely 20 years ago because there wasn't anything online. Uh, but then it went through an explosion of just crap. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I find it's gotten a lot better, you know, now that the, you People know. People are fed up. Well, the, you know, the, the angel fire sites are all now gone, I mm -hmm. think, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that that did a lot of, that did a lot of damage to, you know, uh, ghosts and hauntings and crime and all that kind of stuff in general, uh, where everybody's homemade websites. I right. think they, that has kind of gone by the wayside now and that has helped. So. Yeah, it helps because, I mean, nowadays you can kind of go to a website and within uh, 30 seconds of looking at it, you can kind of be like, okay, okay this yeah, is this, a guy in a basement. Yeah, and it's written in purple font. Exactly. So yeah. you're Neon green to, background. Yeah, yeah, with flashing lightning or yes. something on it. Yeah. All right, okay, so, but this is true that Edwin left instructions that he wanted a lot of his stuff burned and that destroyed. Is, yeah, that's true, too. Why do you think that I don't is? Know. He was just I don't done know. with I've, it? I've wondered about that. I've, I've asked about it. I've tried to find it. Um I just think that, I mean, here was a guy who left the company in the early 1900s, and then not, that wasn't far enough. I mean, he didn't, just leaving the, the brewery business was not enough. He then decided to pack up and move out into the woods and live with his animal menagerie and his gourmet kitchen. And, yeah. You know, he really was a, became a self-sustaining person i mean mm -hmm. he 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 didn't there was no reason for him to come into the city he didn't have to anymore yeah you know he had all this money and he didn't have to have a life he didn't want so he didn't mm -hmm. he just literally didn't i've always respected that about him i've always thought this was a guy who made up his mind to do something and he never backed down from it he mm -hmm. just stayed out there yeah. you know and um you know he 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 bought a a lot of you know animals from overseas and things and brought them imported them and gave them to the zoo you know for other people to enjoy i mean this was just a guy who lived in his own little world and um for whatever reason he decided that he didn't want any of this stuff to survive now i can kind of understand i mean it's a it's a loss don't get me wrong because i wish we had it but he had tons of memorabilia paper stuff records and that kind of thing but he wanted all of it burned now why he had his paintings burned i don't understand mm -hmm. these were things he collected um for years um he loved art and had he just didn't, didn't want anybody to have it of course who was he going to give it to at this point i mean he still had there were nephews and nieces and you know cousins that kind of thing left but i don't think there was anybody he was close to in his family anymore everybody was gone i mm -hmm. think you know and I just don't, for whatever reason, he just wanted it all burned, and I don't. I'll never, I'll never be able to figure that one out. It's so. weird. I could, I could see him, him setting it all on fire and then killing himself, yeah. maybe. But, but, he, but he didn't kill himself. He died in his sleep. He was ninety years old. Oh, he just passed. Edwin just passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. I was. Yeah, I meant you were thinking of Charles. Charles, right? No, Edwin just passed away. He, um, he lived to be ninety, and he just that was the end. And then, but he had left strict instructions that he wanted it all burned. Okay, no, that makes more sense. I was getting Charles and Edwin oh, okay, gotcha. confused. Sure. I have it written down correctly. I just can't read, apparently. <laughs> okay, that's super interesting. Okay, well, I guess we should probably start wrapping this up then. Um, for me, I'd just like to say thanks again to everybody for listening to the podcast. We, we really appreciate uh, all the comments, uh, all the, uh, the reviews, the posts that you make on the Facebook page. Uh, we... We, we have a great time with this, and we're glad that you guys have been enjoying it as well. Uh, we just ask, the one thing we ask from you is leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we would really appreciate that. Even if you listen on something else on the website or Stitcher or whatever, it makes it a lot easier for people to find us, as, as we talked about early on. And uh, if you can leave us a review, that would be great. And uh, until next time, uh, I will sign off. Awesome, yeah. And speaking of reviews, we had uh, an interesting one. Uh, somebody said they left a review that they said they like that they can tell when I'm tipsy. <laughs> I saw that too. I want to say thank you. I want to say uh, my mother doesn't, but but it means a lot. Um, so thanks for that one. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, I just wanted to do a quick plug. I did a, a Facebook Live show the other day um, called Bourbon Fridays, yeah. and it, you can find it at facebook.com slash EQSTL. Uh, and we got to talk about how we've grown the podcast, and um, they were really interested in, in that. So that's really fun. Check that out. 
and we will see you again in two weeks for the conclusion of, of the, the limp, limp episode. Yeah. yeah. podcast is a way to combine historic record folklore science and observation and imagination to uncover more about america's most haunted places including st louis missouri american hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast you can hear new episodes every other tuesday so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings you can learn more about the podcast and find new episodes on itunes by searching for american hauntings or by going to americanhauntingspodcast.com where we also have some links to troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours events and haunted happenings as for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. You can find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author page, or AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois.